Well, hello there. Welcome to episode 82 of Existential. Uh, thank you to all of you who continue to listen. I hope you're enjoying the content, especially the last couple of weeks. Have this not been just utterly amazing conversations? First with Dr. Christina Cleveland and then theologian Candice Binbo. Um, hopefully we're able to buy both of their books because they're both incredible books and they will enrich your life, I think. Enrich your life. I feel like I'm turning into like a televangelist or something, even though I'm not on television. Whatever. Welcome. <laughs> glad glad y'all are here listening. Let me um, answer a couple questions um, that I'll get from time to time just up front. If you'd like to support this podcast, my work, there's a couple ways you can do it. The simplest way for um, almost everyone to do is to go to the Patreon, which you can Go to uh, in the show notes of this episode and I think just about every other episode of the podcast. You can support my work in that way. Uh, another way that's a little bit more creative and probably not everyone can do is I am a certified uh, diversity, equity, equity and inclusion coach. And I do do that uh, coaching for organizations, uh, nonprofits, for profits, doesn't matter. I, I, um, I am certified to do that. And I that is something that I feel is worthwhile. I know that. DEI at times takes a can have a bit of a negative rap, but I think that's more so because of how it's used and um, how people choose to participate in it more so than it is about the craft itself. All right, so those are two ways that you can support, and um, if you would like to uh, discuss the DEI uh, coaching with me, um, you can go to my website coreyevanleak.com, and we can start a dialogue about that. All right. There's been some uh, some news lately uh, about a, you know, I think I actually think that it's the number one podcast in the world. At least it was. Um, I wasn't really all that attuned to it at first. I was kind of like, you know, not really paying attention. I think someone sent me a link and then I watched the link and then I started hearing people talk about it. So I still haven't done a deep dive into all of the ins and outs of the Joe Rogan controversy. But I want to take some time today to talk about what started it. And what started it is the N-word, is the word nigger or nigga. And there is, there's been this conversation about this word for some time. Um, and I want to address some of the things that come up when that word is discussed. First, let me start by um, stating the obvious, or at least should be obvious to, to most of us, um, to quote the great Jamel Hill, um, the times that white people should use the word is never, ever, never, ever, not in a song, not quoting lyrics not quoting a black person, um, not because you have black friends that have given you permission to say it. Like, there's never a time where a white person should say that word. And let me actually, let me correct that. There is a time that white people should say it, and it is when they are willing to come forward and declare to the world that, yes, I am indeed all-out racist, and I don't care that you know. Like, I'm not trying to hide it. I am a racist. Which, interestingly enough, 
throughout the history of America, I don't know that a single racist act was carried out by a person who believed themselves to be racist. The men and women who treated the black ancestors with such vitriol and hatred did not believe themselves to be evil, wicked people. So the, the, the idea that racism um, has this very intentional and deliberate functionality to it is a myth because that's not how it works. You carry on in your life in such a way that you think is good, you think is right, you think is correct. And in doing your normal everyday activities, you say things, you behave in ways that are harmful to other people. And those of us who um, have a willingness to listen to people most affected by the way we treat them or the things we say, the ways we behave, have the opportunity to change, to behave differently. But that requires a certain level of humility that it appears to me that Joe Rogan, from what I have seen from him, does not, did not have. And it's kind of indicative of of this thing I've been noticing over the last, I don't know how long, probably since, probably uh, since 2020. I think it started a little bit in 2016, actually, with this whole idea of the forgotten man. Um, that white men, um, and let me, because I have time, because I got time today, all right? Let me, let me say that I say this for those of you maybe listening for the first time. I don't mean all white men. All right, that's the last time I'm going to give that caveat. Uh, obviously, I do not mean all white men, but I'm going to say white men moving forward so that I don't have to keep wasting your time explaining why I'm saying white men. White men have begun to feel a sense of fatigue at being the antagonist in the story of America. And starting to push back, starting to um, have enough, which is, is, to be honest, somewhat of an understandable reaction. But they've begun to, to, and what I see from Joe Rogan is just like, hey, man, I'm not racist, right? I, I, I can determine that on my own. I don't need a community of people to tell me. Maybe I've got a couple black folks around me who tell me I'm not, I'm not racist, so I can say and do what I want. In fact, I, I remember years ago, there was a, a, a preacher, a white male preacher, who had adopted an Asian um, daughter. In fact, there were two different ones that adopted Asian daughters, now that I think about it. And they felt like because they adopted Asian children that they could say and do whatever they wanted to do. Like, I remember hearing from both of them these racist rants during sermons that this was sort of before my quote-unquote awakening and, and deconstructing in my former life, <laughs> if you will. Um, I remember even then feeling like, that's not right. Like, there's something wrong 
with this. Like this, he shouldn't be able to say that. But they felt justified in saying it because they quote unquote adopted Asian children. And I think sometimes for white men, perhaps white women, there's this, I, uh, I have black friends, I have a black spouse, black partner, um, I have a black mentor, whatever the case may be, that then I am allowed certain black privilege, if you will. I can take liberties with what I say and how I act towards all black folks because this other black uh, person that I know gave me permission to. And let me be clear about this. That's not okay. You don't have a pass. Proximity to people of color does not give you the, the pass or the right to behave in ways that are harmful to others. And let me just be very clear about this also. Like, black folks are not a monolith. Nor are we um, not human. I have myself been in situations where white men or women have said things that made me uncomfortable, but I didn't have the courage to say anything. And we should not um, penalize or disparage or treat, uh, how do I want to say this? We shouldn't um, criticize black people for not having the courage to stand up for themselves. Because put in our shoes, I don't know how many white people would have the same courage to stand up for themselves, given the history of this country, given the treatment of black people from the dawn of the United States of America to this very moment where we are once again grieving a no-knock warrant where a young 22-year-old man who was asleep on a couch was shot and killed by the police. Where we just celebrated not too long ago uh, what should have been Trayvon Martin's birthday. We sh his, his family should have been gathered around a cake watching him blow out candles. But America snuffed out his life because he's black. And then we turn around and want to criticize or shrug our shoulders or or have the idea that why didn't you say something when black folks don't have the courage to say hey that was offensive because you know let me let me just let me just say this very personally and very real uh, i'm a human being and when i'm in a conversation with someone i'm not expecting that something's going to be said that harms me I'm kind of taken aback by it just last week my wife picked up our youngest daughter from high school. She was crying. You can't make this shit up. Like, this is just last week. She's crying because someone sent an image of a white kid that um, it was like a Snapchat picture, and the picture said, um, whites above niggers. Now, this is 2021 in high school. I remember when um, white folks were telling me that we need to wait out the baby boomers so that racism would just kind of fizzle and go away on its own. But here we have not millennials, not Gen Xers. I don't even know what this next generation is called. 
I think this is the generation behind that generation that is still using the word nigger. This word nigger was used to otherize us as black people and to allow um, white supremacy to label us something other than what we are. But then as black people tend to do, we took that thing that was meant to harm us and we found a way to build camaraderie within our community with that same word. We found a way to, to use that word in our community for us, by us. And then after we redeemed something that was used to harm us here in our time now in 2021, I hear white folks going, well, if, if we can't say it, then no one should say it. I've actually even heard black people say that. Can I just um, let me let me give you an analogy on that. OK, because I, I believe if you're in a crowd at a rap concert. And and the line is something like, um, yeah, we about to roll up on these niggas and blah, blah, blah. This is how it should sound if you are white in that audience. Yeah, we about to roll up on these and blah, blah, blah. That's what that's how it should sound. If it's a room full of white people quoting that rap, it should sound there should be a, a, a self-centering that happens where you just let that word go on by and mind your business. But here's an analogy for you. Because those of you that feel like, well, it's not fair. I'm caught up in the energy of the moment. And, and we're all at this rap concert together. And we're all in it together. And I don't mean any harm by it. But, man, you know, everybody should be able to do it because we're vibing. So let's just say you're at a sports game. Right? Let's say you're at the NBA Finals. Or the Super Bowl. And your team makes a last-minute play that's miraculous. And it wins the game from improbable circumstances and everybody in the stands everybody's going wild and you see a couple turn to each other and embrace and kiss would you think it was appropriate for you to also kiss one of those two partners that's not yours I don't, maybe you would. I mean, maybe, maybe if you had so much to drink, maybe you think that's appropriate. But you would also understand that the blowback would be appropriate also. Like if you decided to get involved in something that was not yours. These two people have a bond. These two people have a way of relating to each other that you don't have because you don't know them. You're not a part of their story. That's not your life. That's none of your business. But for some reason, when it comes to Black folks in their community using the N-word. There is this idea that if white people don't get to participate in it, then black people shouldn't use it either. And that's ridiculous. Now, I understand that there are some black folks, like I think it's Oprah that I heard recently, that, that has made the argument that that word was used to harm our ancestors so she would never use it. And I have much, much respect to Oprah for that. That's fine. I, that she can choose to do that and she's not wrong. Nor, nor do I think that folks who decide to use that in their community for one another are wrong either. What I do think is wrong is for white people to come in and try to police the use of the word or to use it themselves. Unless, again, you are just telling us, hey, guess what? I'm a racist. And I'm fine with the world knowing 
I get I ha- because I, I get this privilege because I'm racist. Just admit it. Just just say it. I'm racist and I want to use a word and it is what it is. You know, a couple years ago, I was giving a talk and I was still working at um, this church that I was working at. And I had started to have some friction with the lead pastor of this church. Like I started just, there was, it was just going south. I mean, ultimately, if I could just tell you what it was, is that we, I was beginning to uh, want to engage more and more in conversations that were happening in real time in the world, things that were important. One of those things that was important was race. And there was some tension that was was happening between us because of that. And so at this talk I was giving, this pastor was there, sitting in the audience. I had They told me I had nine minutes. I couldn't go any longer or pretty much any shorter because it was a very like tight window. So I had nine minutes to speak, and I was speaking on race. And I was speaking on race. I was speaking on policing. I was speaking on all, all these things. And so I rehearsed this speech for a couple of days, and I got it recorded. I got it down to nine minutes, and it's the day of the talk. And, and I'm, I get up on the stage, and I look out there, and there's there's this this older white pastor who's I have some friction with. And then on the front row are two police officers. And in the middle of the talk I gave, I think pretty much, I think the room was, I think there might have been two other black folks there besides my wife who was there. I talked about how my, my dad used to tell me and my brothers that no matter what we did, no matter how hard we worked, no matter um, how skilled we were, no matter how much, how many degrees we had, it didn't matter. To white people, we are still niggers. He would always say that. You still a nigger was, was basically the mantra that we remember from my dad. And I remember as a, as a kid kind of being like, hey, uh, that ain't really like, <laughs> I don't want to carry that around. I don't, I don't want to believe that to be true. Long story short, life taught me that it is true. It's beginning to teach even my, even my brothers are learning this lesson in lots of ways, and we all respond to it differently. But the point is, after I gave this talk, right, I gave this talk, and, and it was a couple of days later, and I was at the church, and this older white pastor uh, asked me um, if I wanted some feedback. And I said, yeah, of course, I want some feedback, because this, you know, this, this guy's been communicating for lots of years and, and knows how to communicate. So any feedback you're going to get from someone is, duh, yeah, of course I want it. And this older, probably, I think, mid-60s white male said, you have to know your audience. He said, when you use the N-word, I felt so uncomfortable, I wanted to leave the room. And I, I, I looked to him, and then he went on to say, and your dad should have never told you that. <laughs> I mean, folks, like... You know, again, you really can't make this stuff up. I, I, and I rem- I'm in this situation. I'm in the room, and I'm looking at him in his face, and I'm like, he actually just said that to me out loud. He actually just said, 
that he was uncomfortable with the N-word. He was. So therefore, I shouldn't have used it. Let me tell you who is uncomfortable with the N-word. Where, where the, the discomfort from the N-word is most felt. It is most felt by, or was most felt by, the people crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Who were met at the end of their 56-mile walk by police officers and dogs and billy clubs being called niggers. It was most felt by the enslaved Africans who were picking cotton, who were doing things in the field, who were um, raped and beaten while being called nigger. It was most felt by Rodney King, whose beating was very public, nearly beat to death by white police officers who were all the while, I'm sure, calling him nigger, or at least believed he was a nigger. Probably most felt by um, the, the countless number and even some of the nameless victims of lynching by white Christians hung from trees, burned alive, spit on while being called nigger. Yeah, so you can uh, miss me with a, I'm uncomfortable with your use of the word. Because what I just described for you is real discomfort with the word. So I want to say this to everyone that's listening to this, but especially my white brothers and sisters and um, any white person that's listening to this. This is a fight, a struggle, a wrestling match that you have to be involved in. If you are around white folks that are using this word, you have to say something. Even if you don't have within you as a human being like the the courage to like all out, call it out and make it a, a big, big ass thing. Find a way, whether it's through humor or in some way, object to racism that happens in front of you. It's rare that there's a Joe Rogan who winds up on public airwaves saying this word with the kind of like uh, <laughs> audacity that he seemed to have using it over and over again. But you don't get to that place without saying it behind closed doors in front of some other people who kind of feel a little type, a little some type of way about it. So even if you don't say it in the moment, maybe you like take a day or two or, or, or a week or or take some time and then revisit it later on. Maybe you send an email. Maybe that's easier for you. But my God, we have to all be aware. Or it's never going to change like the baby boomers dying off is not going to change this. Like, like the, this racism, this 
this this way of treating and being towards black folks is not just going to change on its own. Dr. King told us this when he was in in the letter from a Birmingham jail, when he was getting the same sort of language from white clergy that were saying, hey, time will heal it. And Dr. King said, time is not going to heal it. Direct action is going to heal it. We live in a, a country here in the United States where uh, there are active measures to suppress the voting rights of black people. If you go to the um, um, uh, the, the museum, gosh, I can't remember the name of it now, in Alabama, in um, Montgomery, it's Brian Stevenson's museum. There's a lynching, muse- lynching memorial and then the something museum, cannot remember what it is. There is a, a part of this museum where you can see that in order to vote, there is this form that black people had to fill out. One of the questions was, how many jelly beans are in this jar of jelly beans that's in front of you? There were questions like that, questions that no human being could answer. And we once again, this, this, now this is a museum that is like, you know, hearkening back to times past where black votes were suppressed and denied and, and, and white supremacist leaders found ways to creatively suppress the vote. And here we are again in 2021 battling to not have the vote suppressed. Like, if there ever was a time to be aware and awake to the idea that racism, that white supremacy, that anti-black violence, that anti-black rhetoric, that anti-black legislation is, is alive and well, like, open your eyes. Now it is happening in front of us. And to all of my friends of, that are clergy, you no longer get to stand in what's called a sacred desk. Have a sacred calling on your life, your words, and deny that these things are happening and ignore that these things are happening and pander to a base of people who you are coddling in their racist ideologies because you don't think it's important enough to address directly. I think that was a little bit hard hitting. I felt it when I said it, but I mean every word of it. Thank you all for listening. Grace and peace. Until next time.